I'm studying for this in 1974. I said, this is revolutionary. It says you actually talk to people, find out what they want, and then independently go out and find the best solution for them. People said, you can't make a living doing that. Well, I'm kind of like a bumblebee. I'm too stupid to know I can't fly aerodynamically. You are listening to Your Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Today, I'm excited to share the first episode in a split series we're calling The History of Financial Planning. This first episode is taken from a panel and general session at the 2018 FPA Retreat, where four pioneers and giants of financial planning sat down to share where our profession has been, where we are, and where they see us going. Straight ahead, to kick it all off, Jack Blackenship, Ben Coombs, Charlie Hughes, and Lou Walker take us back through almost five decades of history as they lived it, and where they see the future of financial planning going. When you think about the work of financial planners, do you think of words like passion, purpose, and impact? If not, then something just isn't right. I'm Kate Healy, Managing Director of Generation Next at TD Ameritrade, and we believe that empowering people to live their best lives is a noble calling. The independent REAs who work with us use their passion to help transform client lives, communities, and their own futures. Want to learn more about how we can support you in helping your clients reach their financial goals? Find out more at tdainstitutional.com. Several months ago, when Jeff asked me to moderate this panel, um, I wanted to ask him, what the heck did I ever do wrong to you? (laughs) Um, Just kidding. I uh, I was truly humbled, and uh, and now I have to rise to the occasion. Um, Well, you see, I'm a little bit like Paul Fain without the guitar and without the voice. Um, In 1973, when these gentlemen were breaking the trail that we all now enjoy. Um, I was putting thumbtacks on my algebra teacher's chair. Um, (laughs) So um, thank you again, Jeff, for putting me in this really unenviable position. Um, Some ground rules for the session. The topic is the past, present, and future. And uh, we prepped for this discussion by a conference call and via email. And I came to the conclusion that we might not get to the future. Um, When I asked for discussion points about artificial intelligence and blockchain, I I forget who or maybe I shouldn't disclose who asked that, um, was that something that came after the fax machine? (laughs) No, no, it's just me getting comfortable. (laughs) All right, so um, these gentlemen are truly, um, the, the thing about these gentlemen is that they truly are people who need no introduction. So I'm not going to, if you'll forgive me. Instead, I'm going to each, uh, ask each of them to discuss their personal journey within the context of the profession and uh, where we are today. The ground rules are that they have been given each five minutes to talk about, <laughs> honest to God, that we agree five minutes each, honest to God, about the early years of the financial planning profession and where it has grown to, and maybe we'll get to their vision for the future. So um, who wants to start? Charlie? Okay. <laughs> five minutes, egg timer, hook. Okay. I was introduced to financial planning while I was a wholesaler for a mutual fund company. Normally, I wouldn't name the company, but the name of the company is important. And they happen to be here today, the Oppenheimer Funds. And the reason it's important is because Oppenheimer was owned by Oppenheimer and Company at the time. And therefore, many member firms, wirehouses, would not allow us to come in and speak to their brokers. I'm not sure what the reasoning was, but the result was we ended up, I ended up calling primarily on independent broker dealers, where financial planning really took root in the early 70s. And I became attracted to two aspects of financial planning as I saw it, calling on registered representatives. The first was the personal connection and relationship. And the second was you're providing a service that helps individuals meet their goals. Um, Many of you are probably too young to know 
or have read the Financial Advisor magazine in 2004, but I was previously a priest. And therefore, those two aspects of what financial planning represented to me was akin to what my training had been for 16 years. Um, I decided to take a baby step and went to a member firm in New York City, individuals I knew, and said, I'd like to join your firm. I had my CFP at that time, and they said, we're very interested, but we would expect, as you develop your financial planning relationships, which is a time-consuming development, we would expect you to be selling shares of the companies on our recommended list. So I knew immediately that that was not the direction to take, that they looked upon financial planning as the greatest invention since automatic transmissions. So I decided, along with my wife, to set up our own practice. And um, the structure was very simple. Um, I, I'll bet it's very much like Lou, Ben, and Jack. You had a relationship with a broker-dealer where you implemented, sorry, Elizabeth, for using that word, <laughs> implemented, <clears throat> and you provided financial planning on an hourly basis. By 84, we both became disenchanted with the transaction side of the business and began to wean ourselves from commissions. By uh, 84 and 85, we gave up all of our licenses and operated on a fee-only basis, although at that time there were no platforms like Schwab or Fidelity. So it was very difficult to construct a business without those platforms. Um, we felt, in a sense, conflicted by continuing in a transaction-related relationship with clients. And, um, and that's what motivated us, motivated both of us to give up licenses and work on a fee-only basis. Um, to make a few comments about the present situation, I think there are uh, a handful of very important developments that have already begun, but they haven't matured entirely. The first is the alliance with academia, which wasn't present when the four of us were involved in not only starting our practices, but in our leadership roles at the ICFP. Secondly, youth. According to Cirilli, the average age of a financial advisor is 51, and those advisors plan to retire in 10 years. Without youth, this profession will die. And I'm happy to see that other than us, who are all young, I'm happy to see so many young people embracing the financial planning profession. Thirdly, the fiduciary spirit. Irrespective of what the Department of Labor says or what the SEC says, there is no reason for us not to embrace the fiduciary spirit. In my experience, in two instances, first of all, with that wirehouse experience, where I have found it's not the individuals who are at those firms, it's the institution, which, which inhibits a full embrace of fiduciary. And secondly, when I chaired the committee for the FPA to draft the fiduciary standards, I confronted the same thing. Individuals who 
themselves were happy to be fiduciaries, but their employers, the institutions, resisted. The third is, or the fourth rather, is technology. I am a ignoramus when it comes to te technology, but I recognize its importance and how I have to improve in our practice to embrace technology to a greater degree. And finally, social media. Um, in 2005, I participated in a residency program. This is 2005. And one of the young CFPs said, if a CFP doesn't have a website, I'm not even interested. And that was 2005. So, Bob, I'll leave it there. I have some other observations. If we have time, we'll get fine. We will get to that. Okay. Uh, hi, I'm Lewis Walker, and um, I'm up here as part of a panel of past leaders. But in honor of George Kinder, I am now in the moment, and I will be thinking about the future because one of Dan Sullivan's great lines is always make your future bigger than your past. And so the future is kind of where I am and where I'm going. I came out of Georgetown University in 1960. Vietnam was just getting started. There was a draft. They didn't want to get drafted, so I joined the Air Force, got a commission, became an officer, ended up in Vietnam in 1964 as an advisor. Figured out I didn't want to do that again, so I left the Air Force when I finished my commitment in four years, went to work for United Airlines. They put me in a management training program, and I learned all about how the airline worked for two years. Then they told me they wanted me to run an airport. I can tell you I am not an administrator. On Colby, I'm a 10 quick start. So you know there's problems right there. So I went to Chicago to work for vice president of sales and marketing because I told him I wanted to use the GI Bill to get an MBA in marketing, which I did from Northwestern University. I went to Atlanta to become a uh, vice president of, of uh, marketing for an airline, hated the job and left in eight months. I didn't want to move back to Chicago, New York, all the places I had jobs. I want to stay in Atlanta. And I heard about a friend of mine who was selling investment real estate on commission. I said, I can do that. So I signed up to sell investment real estate on straight commission. No benefits, no salary, no nothing. I just had to go out and prove I could do it. A year later, I'm vice president of marketing. Then I heard in 1973 about this new idea called Certified Financial Planner, and somebody said there's a bunch of guys, a couple of guys studying for this at a local bank. So I went down and joined this little team studying for this thing called Certified Financial Planner. And I told you I had an MBA in marketing. I thought this had to be the greatest sales platform I'd ever heard of. And I got into that, and halfway through I thought, that's not what this is. This is revolutionary. Keep in mind, this is 19... I'm studying for this in 1974. I said, this is revolutionary. This is saying you don't go to work for Merrill Lynch or a big wire house or an insurance company or a bank, because that's where the jobs were. It says you actually talk to people, find out what they want, and then independently go out and find the best solution for them. People said, you can't make a living doing that. Well, I'm kind of like a, a, you know, a bumblebee. I'm too stupid to know I can't fly aerodynamically. So, I thought, well, I can, I can do this. So I got my CFP in 1975 and started my own practice in 1976 in conjunction with my insurance agent. We got an office. I had only been in Atlanta well, maybe three years. I didn't know a lot of people. We got an office, hired people, and got furniture, and we had to go out and find clients. We had to sell things because that was the only way to make a living. I made a living selling John Templeton's mutual funds because with a degree in foreign service, I figured out most people did not have international diversification. So I sold John Templeton's mutual funds by the boatload for 7% commissions. That's what they paid. And you know what? Nobody got hurt. They loved those funds because they kept them and they did well. Let's keep moving forward. We're growing the firm that was based on, on a sales type platform. Then later on in the 80s, we began to hear about something called assets under management. E.F. Hutton was the first to come out with that. 3% management fees. E.F. Hutton started that. Pardon? What? 
Oh, yeah. When B.F. Hutton talks, people listen. Where are they now? Nobody's listening. They ain't talking. They ain't talking. Yeah. So, we heard about assets under management. Now, meantime, mutual fund commissions were coming down to what? No load. He said there was no Schwab. Well, Schwab and all those platforms were coming along. Because in the early days, if you were trying to switch from one mutual fund family to another, it was a nightmare. So all these platforms are coming out no load. Ah, we're going to go out and talk about asset allocation. Remember that? I'd follow Roger Gibson around and translate his book into English. <laughs> Love Roger. He's still out there. And that became the model. Now, where are we today? There's a big shift. And we've been talking about that shift. And I'm still kind of revolving around exactly what that is, because I know it's there. I've been picking up ideas here. But the big shift is you're not going to prove value by managing investments. It is very hard to <coughs> generate alpha today. That's not going to distinguish you from anyone else. If you tell people you're a financial planner, is that going to distinguish you? Ben and I were talking about the first retreat. I think it was 75 people there. Yeah, and we all paid our own way. We all paid our own way. Fortunately, it was free wine, so <laughs> anyway. But think about this. Look at this crowd. We got, what, 400-some people here just at this meeting. Some of them paid their own way. And many of them <laughs> paid their own way. So think about that. How are you going to add value today? It's going to be in the conversation because you really cannot replicate that. Face-to-face -face will always be better than cyberspace. So we have to get deeper in the conversation. Now, let me just segue quickly to the future, because what am I doing? I sold my practice two years ago. I will confess to you, I turned 80 this year. I was a little late to get to do that. You know why? Because every time I was approached about selling my practice, the first thing they want to know is, Walker, when are you going to leave? Wrong question. You talk to business owners, there's a cascade of privately held Closely held businesses that are going to segue in the next 10 years. Got to, if you look at statistics and baby boomer owned businesses, we got a 22 year run of incredible opportunity because these business owners, Susan Bradley said today, only 19% even have an advisor. 80% of the businesses put up for sale do not sell. Very few, we've done surveys. I went out and got, an, I got two designations since I sold my business. I'm now a Gallup trained uh, strength consultant, and we're using tools like Colby and Gallup Strength Finder with our clients. If you want to help them find purpose in what they're designed to do in retirement, they need to know what their strengths are, what their God-given talents are, and how they're going to use them. We, we say the biggest worry people have about retirement is running out of money. I think that's wrong. I think it's boredom. 80% of the business owners that sell their business are sorry a year later because they're bored. That works for our profession too. So I think our future is taking the basics of what you know in financial planning and figuring out who really needs you. What's that subset out there that needs you? And whether it's retirees, widows, whatever, and get very good at those deep conversations because that's where your distinguishing characteristics are gonna come from. It's not gonna come from lunch seminars and all that stuff. It's got to be in the conversation. And I think that's our future. Good evening. <clears throat> I'm Jack Blankenship. I'll go through the decades as I lived them. I started uh, my, my practice in October of 1974. And those of you that can remember, it was highly inflationary that whole decade. The Dow Jones Industrial Average bottomed out in December of that year of 1974 at 575. And retirement planning, financial planning was difficult, at least I thought it was. We had little, if any, computer power. Financial planning was in its infancy, just beginning really. Interest rates were double digit, with 20-year treasuries topping out at close to 20%. Inflation was 13% or more, and the Dow Jones Industrial Average was pretty much flat. Not moving off its dime, until the bull market began in 1982. With these economic ingredients, what rate of return on investment do you use in attempting to formulate a plan for tomorrow? 
That was the question we always asked. The Trash 80 was introduced at the end of the decade. The HP 12C was introduced in 1981. Before that, we used little machines that had four, four uh, hours to it. The IBM PC was introduced in 1981, but we wrote plans, big, heavy plans. The 1980s saw decreasing interest rates, and it was the beginning of the bond bull market that lasted over 30 years, and the beginning of the equity bull market. And we had increased and increasing computer power. We learned and we learned and we learned more. Financial planning was fun as we were able to actually compute and formulate better advice and recommendations. The Tax Reform Act of 1986 changed the landscape concerning investment tools to be used in the assumptions to be incorporated in financial and retirement planning. The crash of 1987 was scary, horrific of course, but looking back, it was our beginning. It was for me. It was a calling. We had passion. We were so passionate we were on a mission, something bigger than us. We used to call it the movement. Some still do. We were giving birth to a new profession. Theology, medicine, the law, accounting, architecture, nursing. Interestingly, our studies at the Board of Standards in the early 90s indicated that of all the professional standards of practice, ethic, practice and ethics, the nursing profession had the highest standards of all. The 1990s, the CFP mark, the recognition of one designation, the only designation, one profession, campaign presentation in Boston of April 1988 gave us the mantra to be used going forward. Fiduciary responsibility at all times was one of our mantras. Cannot take one hat off and put another on. Another was the abolition of anyone can call themselves a financial planner. We wanted to take our light out from under the basket and let it shine for all to see. The Board of Standards began its journey in 1990 to write its standards of practice. The aughts and the teens, many battles have been won. Fiduciary duty, a key hallmark of our profession, places us on the road to being a profession. Our new code of ethics and standards of conduct effective in October of uh, 19 calls us to conduct financial planning process before offering advice and recommendations. We have had in from the beginning, the four E's, ethics, experience, education, examination, along with a comprehensive body of knowledge, the hallmarks of a profession. The future, I really don't know. But what is missing and what is yet to be is the inability of just anyone being able to call themselves a financial planner. Down the road, a sovereign body, hopefully the federal government, will require those who profess to practice financial planning to be licensed. And in order to be licensed, the planner would necessarily hold the certified financial planner mark. Financial planning, the joy of financial planning. Being able to work with clients to help them define their life goals and to help them achieve those life goals is a blessing and a gift. The work of the financial planner will not go away as the future unfolds, nor will that work ever be diminished. Being able to serve clients in the manner of a financial planner is a true joy. It's a gift, and it should always be treated as a gift. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, never be the last one. It's one of the things I've learned. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, in 2011, I wrote an article I don't think I ever sent in to anybody for publication called The Ten, Ten Lessons I Learned from Our History. So I'll try to uh, be quick to go through this. Uh, it's only eight pages long. <laughs> anyway, the. The first thing I learned is chaos equals opportunity. I found out about the International Association for Financial Planning in 1971 when I set up my business as a financial planner for the first time. There was a second time in 1976 
But just to maybe repeat some of the things Jack said, you know, as we learned earlier, the Society for Financial Counseling was uh, set up in December 1969. And the, it was an interesting period of time in our economic history. The stock market hit, the Dow Jones hit 1,000 in 1968 and bounced around 1,000 for five years up until 1973. And as Jack mentioned, it, it fell by over 400 points uh, by the, by, uh, just before the end of 74. That's a 40% loss of wealth. The, uh, the highest tax bracket in uh, 1971 was 70%. I started with school teachers, and a two-income school teacher family was in the 50% tax bracket. Uh, and inflation was running at 13%. Interest rates were up around 18%. And uh, we started having limited partnerships which died their own death about 15 years later. Uh, so this period of time in our history lasted 10 years. And during that time, I, I set up my financial planning practice, failed at it, set it up again in January 1976. Uh, and the one thing I've learned from that is that chaos equals opportunity, and the time to build is when destruction is all around you. Next thing I learned is that critical impact is more important than critical mass. I look out at the number of people here at our first graduation uh, celebration in October 1973, there was 42 of us getting our CFP designation. I remember in 1966, when I got my CLU, I proudly put it on my check. Colin B. Coombs, CLU. Nobody ever asked me what CLU stood for. Then in October 1973, I added CFP. So I Colin B. Coombs, CLU, CFP. The first time I cashed a check, the person said, what's CFP? No one ever asked what's CLU, but the first time I cashed a check with CFP on, somebody <laughs> asked me what CFP was. And I told them, and they said, duh. <laughs> you know, like, how dumb am I? I should know. There was only 42 of us in the whole world. <laughs> <laughs> Did it bounce, Ben? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's called leverage. Isn't it? <laughs> so anyway, the thing I learned, a critical, a critical impact, CFP has its own critical impact, even when there was only 42 of us, is better than critical mass. And be sure that the marks stay worthy. That's one admonition I give you. And the best way that you can be sure the marks stay worthy is that you be sure that you stay worthy of the marks. Next thing is out of the mud, the lotus grows. We have a checkered history. Our first graduation seminar or program, you know what the theme of it was? Mega selling. Mega selling. And ev just about everybody on that program ended up serving time in jail. God. Glad it wasn't in that class. So, but out of that, we have people like Dave King, Henry Montgomery, Bill Anthes, E. Kemp Fain. A few dedicated people will always win out over the many that are lazy and even larcenous. The other thing I've learned looking back over our history is that the closer you hold on to something, the more likely it is to die. I won't go into all the ramifications. David didn't do it last night, but uh, probably the greatest act of sacrifice that we've seen in our profession is when the College for Financial Planning gave up the ownership of the marks to the, uh, what is now the CFP Board of Standards. And it has blossomed multiple times since then. 42 equals how many? 300 and some thousand worldwide now? Can you imagine investing in something for $42 and having it worth $385,000 today? Anyway, what I've learned is when you let go of something or anything, it grows. If you hold it close, it dies. Uh, the other thing is, 
uh, I was in the life insurance business for eight years, and I always felt like I was being trained to do something to somebody, and that I was being <laughs> I was being trained to be an answer in search of a question, and if you didn't have the right question, I was trained to help you reword your question, so I had the <laughs> right answer to it. <laughs> and so going into the financial planning business for me was becoming answers in search of questions. But uh, when I went in the life insurance business, they put me in the bullpen, right? And you had to smile and dial and, and all that. Uh, so the only thing I knew about what I wanted to be as a financial planner is I knew what I didn't want to be after eight years in the life insurance business. And so I tried to do everything different. And uh, I qu it quickly dawned on me that I was in the service business. Uh, Elizabeth talked a bit, uh, today about being uh, in the caring business. But it, it dawned on me I could be a service without ever having a client. I could be a service through a service club. I could be a service through Chamber of Commerce. I could be a service by setting up CFP classes. Uh, you know, I was the only CFP between Monterey and San Diego at that time. And uh, so it was easy for me to conduct acts of service every day, whether it was for a client or for the profession or for a community organization. So the best way to feel good about yourself is to help other people, I discovered. And take an interest in others, and others will take an interest in you. That's how my business grew, is I took interest in other people, and they took interest in me. And be present with whomever you're presently with. Uh, and then the other thing I learned is nothing happens until somebody trusts somebody. I was taught in the life insurance business, no, nothing happens until somebody sells something. But I've learned uh, quickly that nothing happens until somebody trusts someone. Uh, we've been hearing all this today about uh, life planning and, and all the dynamics of that. But I, I quickly learned that people came to me through referrals. That's how I bit my built my business, but they came to me on faith, based on what they heard from a friend. But uh, they only learned to trust me through performance, and their obedience never happened until they trusted. So it became faith equals trust, or leads to trust, and then leads to obedience, or as Elizabeth would say, Implementation, was it? No, 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 <laughs> wrong word. Okay. <laughs> anyway, what I learned during that time is live up to your commitments. Be, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Always keep others posted on what's happening as it's happening and doesn't happen. I learned that during the limited partnership death, debacle, whatever it was. And never let anybody hear bad news from anyone but you. And be the first with the bad news. Uh, and then, we, how many seminars did we have where we debated forms of compensation? <laughs> we're still anyway, doing it. Yeah, we're still doing it. But anyway, I, I will cut out about three paragraphs by just saying with you, the problem with any form of compensation is the person receiving the compensation not the form of compensation. The other thing I've learned is uh, competition breeds competence. Uh, I've, I keep hearing about the, the fear of robo-planners here. And uh, we used to be scared to death when E.F. Hutton went in the financial planning business and Merrill Lynch went into the financial planning business. And, no love mutual funds. Yeah, and all that stuff. Uh, but all they did was expand our market of dissatisfied customers, and it, <laughs> and it led to growth. So bring on the, on the competition, but just keep the playing field level. And then uh, the next thing is that leaders must be mentors. And I uh, learned that maybe most dramatically when Paul Fain gave his first uh, presentation was that in 2003 at, at uh, uh, Traverse City and uh, I didn't know what I had been doing Paul told me uh, at 
And leaders have to be mentors. Uh, leaders need to know, and then leaders also need to know from when to stop being on the platform and become the platform. So, uh, and then the last thing is leadership must build leadership. Uh, we would not have grown to the point we are unless those of us who have led in the past invested ourselves in the leadership that took uh, form after us. And unless we're willing uh, to replicate ourselves and multiply ourselves through successive leadership, this organization, this profession uh, will not grow. So I would commend all of you who are leaders today, but I would admonish you to make sure that you create at least two more leaders to take your place. Could I, could I say something about John? I just want to add a point about Ben. Uh, in 1970, I got a call from Henry Montgomery. He wanted me to come to a meeting in Phoenix and join the board of something called the ICFP. And he said, but I got to tell you, you got to pay all your own, your own expenses. And I said, why would I want to do that, Henry? He said, because it's important. And I went on that board, and I had the privilege of following Ben as president of the ICFP. And you've seen the wisdom that's in Ben's head. And getting to know people like Dave King, Henry Montgomery, and all those, those folks, that's the point. I learn from them. We all learn from each other. And you who are here, and you who volunteer in leadership in this organization, that's the value of being here. I learn more in the conversations in the hall with people like Ben and these guys to my left and right, and some of you in the audience, more than I ever learned in the classroom. So thank you for showing up. There's a timer down here, and I, I kept thinking that um, it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So thank you all for coming. <laughs> no. So I'll let, um, so let Mike. Uh, first of all, there are mics out here, and we want this to be interactive. So if you have a question, do stand up. But first, I'm going to ask my question, which is, if uh, if you had to build this profession from scratch. How would you do it and what would it look like? But, be, and, but before you answer that question, I want to go back to the year that the ICFP and, um, uh, and the IAF emerged. And I think, Dave, you stood up at one point, I could be wrong, right, and said, I look forward to the day when everyone who holds themselves out to be a financial planner has a CFP. And I remember thinking at the time, that's an interesting statement because I don't think you would go to an American Medical Association meeting and someone stand up and say, I look forward to the day when everyone who holds themselves out to be a doctor has an MD, right? It just wouldn't happen. But, but here we are X years later, and, you know, and the profession is growing. But I still think back to when barbers and surgeons were one and the same and, and split at some point. Because... Anyway, Bob, I want you to know we did build this from scratch. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Well, no, no. But go back in time. Go back in time before 1973. Go back to you know 19 like when securities law was put in place. Right. Everything we have today, me, seems like in reaction to something, right, as opposed to being proactive. Right. So how would you build it from you know if you had to sort of say, what would it look like from a regulatory point of view? From a, a regulatory point of view. Yeah. Every, yeah. Oh, uh, you know, I can only react to it from my point of view, and that I built. I built my business and I built my uh, built a profession during my time in leadership from the desire not to be what I had been before. And that's an answer in search of a question. And so I was, I was hoping that we could build a profession around answers in search of questions, which requires somebody to take a broader perspective, number one, and it also requires a body of knowledge. And uh, that was what the college was going to be build itself into. I I wasn't anything before. <laughs> ben Ben was something before. He um, I but, was. But, you know, but if you could go back was, to nineteen thirty and say we're not going to have a front end load on an Oppenheimer fund, and we're not mm -hmm. going to have a limited partnership or trails or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. I, we didn't. I we didn't talk about that. Oh. We just talked about the interaction with clients and the point of view that we brought to that interaction. I recall when I was with Oppenheimer going into my boss 
um, the president of Oppenheimer Management, and uh, our main competition was the Dreyfus funds. Dreyfus decided to go no load. Fidelity went no load. Vanguard went no load. So I said, Mr. Spiro, why doesn't Oppenheimer consider going no load? <laughs> Fortunately, I kept my job. <laughs> because that was not an avenue that firms that had a distribution mechanism in place would even consider. And, uh, and now you look at the array of no-load funds on any platform. You look at the proliferation of no-load annuities. Everything has changed. So. I don't know if I would envision anything being different 30 or 40 years ago, because it really laid the groundwork for the progress we've made today. You want to go to a question from the audience? Yes, I do. Okay. Oh, sorry. I didn't see you there. Embarrassing you, what you left out of your history was the time that you uh, stepped in as executive director of the ICFP when the ICFP was going through some tough times and you were shuttling back and forth between Long Island and Denver. So thank you. Uh, my wife doesn't thank me, but, <laughs> <laughs> but thank you, Kathleen. So um, I have two questions. One is, did they sort you all by hair? <laughs> Whoa. Uh oh. Uh -oh. <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> Alisa, what did you say about heads like Jack and I? <laughs> My real question is um, for one or all of you, is there something that's happening right now, like really new, that you either hoped would happen but was skeptical or thought? Would, would never happen. Something in this profession that's happening like right now, or maybe even is just starting to happen, that back in the beginning of your career, you thought was just, that'll it would be great, but it will never happen. Well, I, I think the, the battles over the fiduciary concept has begun to shape things differently because one, the press has embraced it. The, the public is starting to figure it out. Now, we couldn't be where we're sitting if we didn't do what was in the best interest of the client. Now, there is a danger when regulators try to define that what? They wrote, a Department of Labor wrote a 1,027-page document that does not define what doing in the best interest of your client is. It's going to be defined by trial lawyers when something goes wrong. So one of my counsels here is do every plan as if you're going to be in court and facing a plaintiff's lawyer. So this whole thing is shifting where we're beginning to recognize and the public's saying, hey, your value is, as I'm repeating myself, your value is not in managing money. Your value is not selling me stuff. I can find stuff, no load on the internet. Your value is helping me figure out what to do with my life, marks where I'm going from the present to my future, and helping me define what that future is. In our so it's, again, this depth of conversation. Of we're also splitting off into um, areas of expertise. If you've never been We've to got people like Katie Votava here, who's very valuable to, retreat, to us really in the healthcare. Carol McClanahan, she's a doctor. She's taking a different viewpoint. So we're bringing in these other disciplines to shape where we're going. So I think, you need to be a CFP. But that, that body of knowledge, you're kind of a generalist. You've got to figure out where am I going to specialize and really get deep to help people find the future that they're, they're trying listening. to define and get there. Make that life transition. Come out of the confusion phase to a new, a new normal. I'd like to follow up on what... Oh, I'm sorry. Bill? Charlie. Um, I... This notion of developing specialties beyond just uh, being certified, I think is a very important initiative that the CFP board should undertake. 
for some of the reasons that Lou cited, but also for a few other reasons. I think we find it difficult to serve lower income people and provide them with financial planning advice. We need to solve that problem. Secondly, I'm finding, because my client base is older, their issues are very different than a client who's 50 years younger. And whether it's advising them on looking for nursing homes, assisted living, whatever it may be, I'm learning on the job. And I'd like to learn in another way. And thirdly, I think the notion of compensation associated with assets under management has to be reassessed. That it is, it is, um, it, let me give you an example that I learned from the ETF conference in Hollywood, Florida in January. Someone gave the example of financial planning was associated with transactions. We then went through this notion of financial planning being associated with assets under management. What is going to be the next step? Financial planning associated with what compensation model? Uh, I think that's something very important that we should all be thinking about. Can I jump in just real briefly? Yeah. <laughs> there, was a, there was a fellow who spoke. You know, I, 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 um, <laughs> I, I don't have a dictionary to look up how, how you define briefly, but we'll, we'll go well, with that. I'll, I'll show you. At the 2003 retreat in Traverse City, there was a, a worldly philosopher that spoke there, and he said uh, one of the most important statements I've ever heard is that you're only old when your memories exceed your dreams. And so my view of the financial planning industry is that our, and profession, is that our dreams will never exceed our memories. Great, thank you. So we got two questions, um, go ahead, and, and then maybe like one minute per person, or just one minute for one person, <laughs> and then we'll go to Carolyn's question. Mine's uh, just That's a comment. Uh, this is, I'm going down memory lane for Jack's benefit. Uh, my first retreat was in 1985 at UC Santa Cruz, and if I recall, Jack was the retreat dean, correct? Mm -hmm. And if I also recall, back in those days, under the trees included uh, ice chests that had wine coolers and beer on the grass. Mm -hmm. I think uh, staff should look at that to reintegrate <laughs> this into retreat. And even have I trees. We had very free-flowing conversations. Um, so, Carolyn, before you make your question, let me just make a comment to that because it's the perfect segue. Um, tomorrow at 11.30, there will be a under-the-tree session with, you guys don't know this yet, but with oh. you all. Oh. <laughs> Do I have to bring my own tree? With beer and wine. <laughs> yes. You sure it's uh, not under the ground? <laughs> you will be under the ground after you drink. Okay. So there'll be free drinks. Carol, bring your so, own tree. So first off, I want to thank all of you, and I, so many in this room who just really created this profession, and it's so fun you know, me coming from a profession that took 100 years to create and is still creating itself, see the last 30 years what's been created and how you guys have really accelerated that. Um, I do want to, I do take issue with one thing you said, though, so that, you know, when I take issue, I have to stand up and say something. And she already tweeted about it, so it's... Right, right. <laughs> so, so this idea of specialization, you know, in family medicine, which has been maligned in this country and we need to bring back, Family physicians can take care of 90 to 95% of things. And then you have specialists when you need specialists. And I really think that's the way this, we need to stay family practitioners, but we do need to develop specialists that we can refer to. So to me, I think insurance agents should be insurance agents and they should be specialists. So they should not be calling themselves financial advisors. You know, so the same with estate planning attorneys and all that. And if an advisor wants to develop a specialty, business planning, you know, whatever, that's great. But I still think most of us need to be family practitioners because that's what most of the world needs. 
Um, and then one other thing I wanted to say, the compensation, thank you so much for saying that. You know, you guys are giving advice and you're charging for it. And we need to change that conversation around what are you paying us for? And it's not to beat the market. It's not to manage money. It's to help you manage your financial life and your fi and create financial peace. And I think if we all, and I, I said this in a, a roundtable last week in New York, if we all at once changed our compensation model and went away from AUM, it would, it would happen. But we all need to agree to do it. So I dream of that. That's my hope for the future that we do. Um, get paid for what we do well, and that's become financial problem solvers. So thank you guys again. One point, Carolyn, I, I would like to talk to you later. I think you distorted what I was saying about specialization. I agree with your basic concept. I was just talking about taking, you know, a family practitioner, that's fine, uh, my son is one, is taking what you know as a family practitioner, but also getting deeper in certain areas of the conversation based on what people, because we can't be good at everything. So I wasn't talking about just becoming only a heart specialist or, or something like that. Okay, so. good. Um, there, oh, I, I forgot the most important part. We need a three-year freaking residency once people get their CFP. So I dream of the day the CFP board creates a residency program that where we have jobs that these new graduates can go to and that they, they get the training for three years and then they're qualified to go and start their own businesses are well-trained to go work for somebody. So please, please, yeah, you guys didn't hear me saying that since 2008, and I'm grateful to Yeski Bowie and to John Guyton for actually starting residency programs, but we need a board-certified financial planning residency program. So I got to say, it was Kara Morris that started the residency program. Yeah. That's one week. We need three years. Yikes. So um, that, that silly ticker, which you say oh, is yeah. wrong, Charlie. It is um, wrong. I'm not going to ignore it, but I'm going to ignore it for a second, which is we're well over, uh, under the tree tomorrow, no CE, sorry. Join me in thanking the pioneers of the industry. <laughs> How is your work connecting you to your purpose, your community, and your values? I'm Kate Healy, Managing Director of Generation Next at TD Ameritrade. And we believe that independent registered investment advisors have the power to impact the world in profound ways. If you've never considered being an RAA, it's time to take a look. There's no better way to put your skills and knowledge to work for the greater good of your clients, your community, and your own future. Find out more at TDAinstitutional.com. 2018 marks the 45th year anniversary of the CFP marks, which is a huge milestone in our profession. We are truly standing on the shoulders of giants, and I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. If you've never been to retreat, you're really missing out. It is your chance to truly sit down with the pioneers and be part of the movement that started five decades ago to further our profession and provide true financial planning to clients. Next week, we have another live recording to share with you. That one is actually a panel which I moderated on gender inequality in our profession. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening.